This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Brad Beauvais, a Mayo Clinic neurologist who specializes in neurology and in particular, neurodegenerative diseases. Today, we're gonna be discussing neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Bove is a consultant in the Department of Neurology and the Center for Sleep Medicine and a professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He is the Little Family Foundation Professor in Lewy Body Dementia. He is also the Enterprise Chair of the Division of Behavioral Neurology and is a co-investigator in the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. He is co-editor of three books, has co-authored over 40 book chapters, and has contributed to over 600 papers in peer-reviewed journals. His clinical and research interests include Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and the non-Alzheimer's degenerative dementias, which include Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia, primary progressive aphasia, cortical basal degeneration, and progressive supranuclear palsy. He is co-principal investigator of several NIH-funded multi-site research programs focused on these disorders. He is funded by the National Institute of Aging, National Institute of Neurologic Disorders and Stroke, the Little Family Foundation, the Manjurian Foundation, and the Turner Family Foundation. Brad, it's amazing you have time to do anything other than work. And I will tell you to our audience, I have had the great pleasure of knowing Brad, I think, since he began his training at Mayo. So Brad, once again, I thank you so much for being part of our mini series and talking about genes and neurodegenerative disorders. Great, thank you very much, Denise. Brad, I sent you a sort of a, a teaser here before coming and I was so pleased because I'm absolutely passionate on the importance of family history in deciphering when do we suspect genetic causes for presenting conditions. So can you speak to that a little bit when it comes to neurodegenerative conditions? Sure, and I'll try to keep this focused as well. Considering the main degenerative disorders, Alzheimer's disease, which is obviously the most common, Lewy body disease, uh, second most common, and many people still have not heard of Lewy body disease, but it is the second most common, and then frontotemporal lobar degeneration, or FTLD, as it's often abbreviated, which is uh, far less uh, common. The genetic contributions of Alzheimer's disease is clearly present. Lewy body disease, less so, and in FTLD, it's far more common. As much as 30% of FTLD may be genetically driven, including autosomal dominant disorders. And so uh, something that I was taught as a resident uh, over 25 years ago, shake the family tree as a clinician. What was meant by that is not only ask about a family history and what's meant by family history, parents, siblings, children, which is uncommon, but children, 
and then grandparents, aunts and uncles for the most part. And is there any history of cognitive or behavioral changes, regardless of whether there was a formal diagnosis, senility, dementia, Parkinsonism, tremor, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, or any combination of those? Sometimes it's important to even uh, inquire about substance use or abuse, multiple sclerosis. Sometimes that's misdiagnosed. But for the mo most part, dementia, Parkinsonism, and uh, motor neuron disease. Not only the presence of one or more of those, but then to delve in a bit more approximate age of onset. And then to some extent, a few more details. So if there's a history of dementia, was there visual hallucinations? That's a big clue for uh, Lewy body dementia and things like that. So it really doesn't contribute a whole lot of time to the uh, clinical history, but it can be extremely informative. Well, Brad, you know, you mentioned three conditions and, and I think that for many primary care doctors, they may think, well, so what? You know, you find it and what does it matter? But I will tell you that I've had patients in my practice with all three of those conditions. And so it's not uncommon. And in fact, probably two or three times a week in my primary care practice, I have someone who comes in and say, mom had this or mom had dementia or dad had dementia. And I'm really worried I'm going to get it. So are there some things that you would tell a primary care doctor that I think you gave me some real important information that I should ask, when did they first get symptoms? How severe was it? Are there some things that you might tell a primary care doctor or a primary care provider to ask more to delve into? I ask all the time now about hallucinations once I recognize that that was a really important clue to Lewy body dementia, which is really different than Alzheimer's. Yeah, the age of onset is really helpful and the number of relatives that have some type of neurodegenerative flavor because the earlier the age of onset uh, and or the more the number of relatives who have some type of neurodegenerative disorder, those two elements really suggest there is a genetic component and uh, uh, principally an autosomal dominant component. And so all of these disorders, they can present you know, very, very rarely, but in the late teens or 20s, but more often with a genetically driven disorder in the 30 to 60 range. And then a very common scenario is where a parent or grandparent developed uh, dementia in their 70s or 80s. What to do with that is even more complicated because it is so common. And late onset Alzheimer's disease is a multifactorial in many instances. And so the genetic determinants aren't as well known. There, there are a few, but uh, the early onset and the multiplicity uh, relatives that suggest, okay, there's probably something genetically driven here. You know, I think about Parkinson's and if we can talk just a little bit about that as a neurodegenerative disorder. And, and I think most of us, and when I trained, I, I learned, you know, the movement disorders, the pill rolling motion and, and the bradykinesias and the droop face. But I know that sometimes Parkinsonism can be associated with hallucinations and with Lewy body dementia, but how close is that linkage? Is the Lewy body dementia part of Parkinson's or is it a separate entity? Do they go together? It's an excellent question and very timely. I just returned from an international conference on Lewy body disease where uh, there was ongoing debate. What is the linkage between Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia? The thought is the protein is the same, alpha-synuclein. That's the key protein. 
And that protein was discovered when mutations in the gene that encodes for alpha-synuclein was discovered 25 years ago. But mutations in that gene are very, very rare. But it led to insights that that's the key protein. And now the thought is the misfolding of that protein, other factors dictate, does it primarily hit the substantia nigra? And therefore you get a motor phenotype as opposed to it may hit the Niagara, but not as much as the limbic system or the neocortex where cognitive and behavioral changes are the early and most severe manifestations. And why that topography of involvement is different, nobody has a clear answer. We also saw evidence that the genetic determinants, they're probably at least a couple dozen genes that contribute to risk some increase risk, there are a few that may decrease risk, and perhaps they impact topography and therefore the phenotype. So there's a lot that we still don't uh, understand. But the view is Parkinson's Lewy body disease likely on a spectrum. Well, and I recently had a podcast with a colleague who studies breast cancer, and she talked about these sort of single mutation manifestations about breast cancer, and then these polygenetic. And so what I hear you saying is that really, as we think about neurodegenerative disorders, there are some that appear to be sort of an autosomal dominant presentation. And now what we're learning and what you're studying is these polygenetic situations where it's not just one gene, it's the contribution of multiple genes that lead to the presentation of a patient with some cognitive or brain function deterioration that occurs at a variable rate. Exactly. And once we get to this individualized medicine where we can do polygenic risk scores, for individuals really map out the risk. The other complicating factor in this, and this wasn't really appreciated until the past five to 10 years, is it's rare for a person to have a single neurodegenerative disorder. Most people, especially as they get beyond age 70, they have two or three disorders, some vascular disease, some tau and amyloid of Alzheimer's disease, some synuclein, sometimes TDP43. And so this classic uh, identify one disorder, that's not really what's happening, especially in older people. Well, that brings me to an interesting question is because, you know, now that there are more and more advertisements of direct-to-consumer gene testing where, geez, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, you know, I can figure out that I'm going to have blue eyes or green hair or something else. And, and it doesn't happen a lot, but there are patients who come in with their genetic makeup and that doesn't tell the whole story. And so what do you advise, you know, as a primary care provider, patients come in with genetic information, say, oh my God, I'm going to develop Alzheimer's disease because I got this test that says you carry the gene for Alzheimer's. I mean, it can't be that simple. Correct. And, and this is something actually in our practice, I probably get an email or a call from a colleague here about once a month that either they decided to do 23andMe or Ancestry.com or they did it to pursue Ancestry and they got information they didn't expect. The critical one is APOE, apolipoprotein E. And there's three alleles and then the genotypes are two copies. So it could be 2223, 
two, four, three, four, or four, four, presence of one, four is increases risk for Alzheimer's disease. Being homozygote for APOE4 increases risk that much more, but it's risk. And there are some people who are 4-4 who never develop Alzheimer's disease. And there are many people with no four alleles and they develop Alzheimer's disease. So it's quite complicated. And it's only natural that if you see one four, which is common, a significant percent of the population has at least one E4 allele, it's only natural to become anxious with that result. Yeah, I I had these discussions with patients in my office where they want a number. Am I going to get this disease? And I say, you know what? I can give you any numbers you want, 95%, 5%. The problem is we're not smart enough yet to figure out what percent you're going to be in. Are you going to be in the unlucky 5% or the lucky 95%? And so the genetic piece is really challenging. And, And for me as a primary care doctor, I really rely on the clinical geneticists and colleagues like you in your specific area to really help decipher what this means is what is your risk and can we tell you yet what your risk is? And I think that's where the promise of individualized medicine is, I hope, going with things. Alzheimer's, I know, is sort of the predominant neurodegenerative disorder we're seeing. What can you tell our audience about the genetics of Alzheimer's disease? What do we know now in 2022? And and where do you think we'll be over the next five to 10 years with understanding the genetics of Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, the key genes that are known in Alzheimer's disease, one, again, is APOE. And I'll come back to that in a minute because it does have some treatment implications, which I'll talk about in a second. And then the autosomal dominant genes, the amyloid precursor protein or APP, presenilin 1 or PS1 or PSEN1, and presenilin 2, PSEN2. And now those APP, PS1, PS2 account for probably far less than 1% of Alzheimer's disease but they're autosomal dominant, age of onset, usually in the 30s, 40s, 50s, sometimes 60s, and highly, highly penetrant. And there are clinical trials for people who have symptoms and people who don't have symptoms but carry a mutation designed to hopefully slow down the course if symptomatic or delay the onset if asymptomatic. And so in those rare individuals or families that have these mutations, there can be something done about it. Now, granted, we're still in the clinical trial phase, but that is important. And then APOE, same thing, especially for APOE4 homozygotes, there is a clinical trial in progress and there's uh, more planned. So it sounds like in particular in primary care, those early onset where we get that, where we shake the tree and the genes fall out that there was memory difficulty in people in their 30s and 40s and 50s. That's a big red flag to say, gosh, get these people in early to a neurologist, get some formal testing of memory and concerns. Uh, When Bill can't remember where his keys are or Jane can't remember, it's not just I went in the other room and can't remember what I went in the room for. 
what you're telling me. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. In our practice, there's so many, as you well know, uh, so many complicated psychosocial insurance implications for a positive uh, as well as a negative test. You know, the guilt of not carrying a mutation in a family that uh, carries weight too. So involving our medical genetics colleagues or psychiatrists do full pre and post-test counseling, absolutely critical. So, Brad, are there screening questions? I mean, there's lots of tools out there. I'm familiar with Kochman. I'm familiar with MOCA. There's a ton of tests out there. And I don't know, um, is it best to do certain? I mean, I typically have my own regimen of tests. I get to rule out things like depression and thyroid and B12 and and often do some imaging and stuff. Uh, how important it is to do some pre-testing, a good history and physical before I start to send people your way to make sure there's not, and obviously ask about illicit substance use, things like that. But what are the kind of generalities you recommend before we start to send people to a neurologist to really work them up for some kind of neurodegenerative process? Yeah, a good history and physical, just as you mentioned. The screening test, they're all reasonably good, but they have their drawbacks. People with a high baseline, they can score completely normal. And yet they clearly are down a notch functionally or based on their own description. And yet some people who are completely normal screen in the abnormal range on screening tests too. But if they present with a complaint, especially if corroborated by an informant, then doing good laboratory workup, some imaging study of the head and MRI is favored because you get better view of critical structures, especially the hippocampi and then a detailed neuropsychological testing. The neuropsych testing is that much more helpful because again, the screening tests, they're screening tests. And so doing the stress test of thinking is worthwhile. And then depending on laboratory studies and a number of those other things, and one thing I neglected to mention, obstructive sleep apnea, very common and very commonly overlooked. And it's rare to have a dementia syndrome completely caused by OSA, but it's very common to have some contribution of untreated OSA to a cognitive complaint, and obviously that's treatable. So uh, screening for OSA by history, overnight oximetry, or a combination of those things. And then depending on those things, and especially if there is a family history, referral to a, a neurologist is very reasonable, and sometimes we will go the next step. So FDG PET scan, there is molecular PET scans, which are horribly expensive, but very, very sensitive and specific for amyloid as well as tau. The cerebral spinal fluid analysis, also very sensitive and specific and quite a bit less expensive, but obviously a bit invasive. So the determination of those tests, it's more based on the other circumstances. Yeah, one of the things I learned early on about obstructive sleep apnea is I think we all think about the truck driver with the massive neck or the person who's significantly overweight in the range of class three obesity. But I learned that postmenopausal women who may even be of just above normal body weight can actually have obstructive sleep apnea. And, you know, those elderly women who get forgetful, they start to worry and, and other kids often worry. One of the questions I guess I had is how important are things like hearing and vision and the assessment of neurodegenerative disorders? Yeah, a good question. Either or both not only complicates the assessment, 
Obviously, hearing impairment can lead to poor comprehension, but it, it's a primary sensory issue, not a, a brain issue per se. Uh, same thing with vision. So assessing can be difficult. The other aspect, there is some evidence that hearing impairment or visual impairment may in some way contribute to a cognitive disorder. Those associations are not as well understood. If there are cataracts that, that are correctable, you know, it's reasonable to pursue it. Uh, if AIDS may help, uh, it's reasonable to pursue that too. I found it's interesting. I'll often have elderly patients in my office with a family member who are complaining about forgetfulness in an older adult. And it turns out that the hearing is so impaired that they've actually never heard the information. So of course they forget it because they cognitively never processed that they were going somewhere on Thursday because they never heard it. What do you tell somebody who it's not uncommon for someone to say, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting things. I, I can't remember that person and I remember them later, or I forget to do something, but I remember it later. Is that somebody who I ought to go, oh boy, they've got a neurodegenerative disorder coming on. Is that forgetfulness or is that indicative of something bad brewing? This is such a difficult and common quandary. All of us, as we get older, we'll walk into a room. Why did I? go in here or uh, misplace something or forget a name or struggle to come with it. The, the red flag is really when those go from very rare to more frequent and especially relatively consistent. And those consistent things and often observed as well by a family member or a close friend and that dual history, of, okay, something's going on and needs to be evaluated further. This may be a myth or my own created false sense of security, but one of the things sometimes I've seen is that patients who aren't too worried about their memory seemingly have this amnestic loss of memory that they seem to have more frequently a neurodegenerative disorder than the people who aren't troubled by their memory loss. Uh, am I totally off base or is that something that I can a little bit rely on? Yeah, that's an excellent question. The luxury of being involved with an aging study as we have here, it kind of evolves. So those people who are normal and then develop uh, symptoms that they readily voice, as you continue to follow them, the bothersome nature of that tends to go down for them, but it tends to go up for the family member. And so it's almost like a phase where the concern is up and then it goes down more, the so so-called anosognosia in the evolution. Now in FTD, anosognosia is typically present pretty early on. Alzheimer's disease is kind of that phase. Lewy body disease, the complaint is there and continues to be there for a long time into the illness. The awareness of the uh, difficulties is more preserved in LBD. And I guess that's been a bit of my own experience. I don't don't have a lot of experience with the F, FTLD. Yeah, yeah, I had limited experience with a patient, but it was complete apathy, complete unawareness of things and extremely troubling to family members. I realize this isn't your area of expertise, but what do you do about the poor family who's around this person and are witness to this, the caregiver burden, 
what do you tell the family members who are sitting there with their loved one who they can clearly see is continuing to progress with a neurodegenerative disorder and loss of cognitive functioning? Um, what are your recommendations for the things I can tell the family members? Yeah, I think one is, and sometimes I guess neurologists are a bit criticized for this, but I think it, you make the case for, first, let's get the facts. What is this disease? And an investment in some tests for diagnostic clarity is important early on. Those don't need to be repeated over and over again, but try to solidify a diagnosis. And then that also helps with, okay, this is the illness. These are the relative expectations of what's to come and prognosis, but also support, support groups, education, empowerment, maximization of quality of life, where a patient, especially a family, will most benefit from education will depend on the disorder that is likely at play. Unfortunately, we have support groups uh, crossing uh, these, and, and, and each of these are focused for Alzheimer's disease, one for Lewy body disease, one more for FTD, because the issues are quite a bit different. You know, there are some similarities, but the issues are quite different. So in the last little bit of time we have, I actually talk about new drugs and uh, adalamumab. I've talked about ad nauseum, and I don't know that we have to talk a lot about that because that's, I, I think, is a quagmire of a lot of things. But what can you tell me both about where we're at in general with drug therapy but also, where are we with any genetic therapy? I mean, our talk today is about genes, and it's clear that we know some, I, I think we're at the tip of the iceberg in some respects. You know, we're starting to identify sort of genes that are responsible, and maybe genes or groups of genes that are contributing. But where are we and where are we going, do you think, in the future with gene therapy for some of these things? With Alzheimer's disease, you know, the aducanumab, it's been a mess, but the other ones that are right down the pipeline. So we're going to hear a phase three results from donanumab, lecanumab, and gantanirumab over the next six to 12 months. Okay. And so possibly one or more of them may have evidence far higher bar than what aducanumab has shown. And so that will be available for people with symptomatic disease, uh, MCI uh, and uh, mild Alzheimer's disease, dementia. There are some clinical trials going on right now for people who are at risk. So either by, by virtue of a family history or APOE. So that's where the genetics can come in. And then also the autosomal dominant early onset, there are clinical trials in progress for those uh, as well. Gene therapy, it's still thinking that is being done. There are antisense oligonucleotide trials, ASOs. There are a couple that attack misfolded tau that look quite promising. That's a couple years out before we see the end of the uh, phase three data there. And then in frontotemporal lobar degeneration, there are two gene therapy trials in progress for people with a progranin mutation. There are others being planned for the C9-ORF72 mutation, which is the most common gene associated with familial FTD or ALS. There are tau-based therapies for tau mutations. And then in Lewy body disease, also immunotherapies directing against alpha-synuclein and some other agents that affect uh, uh, 
glucose cerebrosidase or GBA, which is a gene that is associated with Parkinson's Lewy Bundy disease. So it, it actually is very exciting to see all this pipeline along these disorders for symptomatic and then asymptomatic. Uh, I should also mention in progranulin, there's a clinical trial going on right now for people who have a mutation in that gene, but have no symptoms. And we're involved uh, in that trial uh, here uh, at Mayo. So a lot of people have not heard about these uh, trials, but I just wanna uh, make sure the excitement in the neurodegenerative field is as high as it's ever been. And we obviously need to see the trial data. Well, I mean, I think that's critically important because one of the pushbacks I've had from patients and patient families often is I don't want testing because there's no hope. And I think your message is very clear here that we don't have the answers yet, but within the neurodegenerative field, now that we know perhaps some of the causes, we can start to get at what can we do about it. And even this testing before the development of disease, preventative for degenerative disorders is, is really holds great promise that by being able to do something about the genetic malfunction and preventing the genetic malfunction may prevent these devastating diseases in younger individuals who had a very bleak future if we can find them. And so that for people who do worry, I don't want to be tested because dad had something young or mom had something young, that may not be the right answer anymore. The right answer may be go to a center of excellence, find out where these clinical trials are going on. If you know dad had this gene or mom had this gene, now is the time to become enrolled and think about whether or not you want to find out if you have it and if it's time to do something to alter your future. Exactly. Uh, and in some of these research programs also, you can participate, but you don't have to do clinical testing. So you're contributing to research and the data may benefit yourself in the future, but you don't necessarily have to learn the genetic results. Uh, that's really up to you if you want to. Another important point that I think is worth emphasizing too, recent data suggests that lifestyle factors probably contribute about 30% of risk, which is amazing, 30% risk. And so exercise, good diet, no smoking, minimal alcohol intake, treatment of sleep disorders, that combination, the treatment of hypertension, treatment of diabetes, all of these things are important. And we now have data in one of our FTD programs that people who have a mutation if they are cognitively and physically active, and this was done in a scientific manner, their age of onset is delayed and their rate of progression is slower if they're physically and or cognitively active. So although we've tended to say that, now there's data supporting it. So even with the family history or genetic information, um, and you know, we all know how this is, we should do these modifiable lifestyle factors more, but then you hear, oh, that might actually help. That kind of increases the motivation. So when my patients ask me about all these great things they see on television for their brain, I should tell them to walk to the pharmacy like I tell them now. It's only five miles. It'd be good for you. Mm -hmm. And oh. don't buy that 
XX that is likely being advertised. <laughs> the ongoing joke I have, as I say, listen, if it was that good, some pharmaceutical company would have got it a long time ago and you'd be paying an arm and a leg. So Amen. I believe you. I said, listen, the most important drug for your brain is oxygen. Best way to get it up there is get your heart rate up and do some exercise. So I, I'm a believer. I'm a believer, Brad. Any last messages for our audience today? Just to emphasize the lifestyle factors and the excitement in this field, we're getting closer. And for those patients and family members who are interested in participating in research with the goal that they in the currently or in the near future could be involved in the scientific effort for delayed onset or prevention, hope that point is driven home. We've been talking about genes in your health, neurodegenerative brain disease with Dr. Brad Bove. Thank you for your time, Dr. Bove. Thank you. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you've subscribed to podcasts.